Good morning again. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here with Redeemer Church of Dubai. If this is your very first week with us, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. We hope you heard Pastor Glenn's announcement about our membership class this weekend. That would be a good first step for you. If you're a member of this church, we have an opportunity to serve also today, right after this service, is a Redeemer Kids volunteer training. So if you're a member and you're not currently serving with Redeemer Kids, we encourage you to consider going right after the service for that. And I wonder if you know what this card is. Do you know what this card is? Do you have one of these? This is our sermon card at Redeemer. It tells us what we're going to be preaching each week from the beginning of this year on until mid-summer, mid-June. And I have to be honest, this week as I looked and stared at our sermon card, I almost had a heart attack. Our passage today is one that I would never, ever, ever choose to preach if I didn't have to. There's some passages of scripture I just wouldn't choose. I wouldn't choose to preach, and this is one of them. I was in a car this week with Chris Lejeune on our staff team, and I asked him, uh, well, I told him jokingly that I was thinking about skipping this passage. And I asked him, do you think anybody in the church would notice? He just kind of laughed, and I figured I should probably stick to the script, stick to the sermon card. Now, Cheryl just read the passage for us, the passage that's before us. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And it's scripture like this, it's verses like this, that I wholeheartedly agree with the Apostle Peter when he writes in 2 Peter about his contemporary Paul. Peter writes, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. But there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now that's funny, isn't it? This is the Apostle Peter saying that the Apostle Paul, well, sometimes he writes things that are pretty tough to get. Pretty tough to understand. I wonder if Peter had this passage in mind when he wrote those words. Maybe so. Well, all the same, my anxiety throughout the week turned into excitement as I studied this passage, as I meditated on the rich words in First Timothy, and as I let them impact my heart, I was overwhelmingly turned to worship and praise of our living God. And so it is with great anticipation we look at this passage because of what Paul says one book later in Second Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes this. He says that all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Then the Lord Jesus himself affirmed that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God is our food, and all scripture, all of it is sufficient for us. Every part of it nurtures us and feeds our soul. That's why a sermon card actually tells you a lot about a church. The sermon calendar tells you a lot about what the church holds to, what's important to it. You know, if you look at ours, or if you pick one up after the, the service today, you'll see that we are committed to regular expository preaching of God's word. That means that for us at Redeemer, we take the point of the passage, and that becomes the point of the sermon. And we regularly walk through different genres of scripture, wisdom, history, epistles, prophecy. 
We teach from all sections of Scripture, and we preach through different books of those portions, and we go verse by verse. We go by passage by passage, and we don't skip difficult portions, even if the preacher is tempted to. We trust, we trust that what God has to say in his word is the very word his people need to hear. So if you don't have a sermon card, pick one up afterwards at the connections table, study ahead, read ahead, see that we're committed to the scriptures. And on that card, you'll see that in 1 Timothy, Paul is answering that question there on the screens. He's answering the question of what is a healthy church? And we've seen uh, in the first couple sermons, we saw that healthy churches protect each other from false teachers and they guard sound doctrine by holding on to faith and a good conscience. And then last week we saw that in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul is now moving into giving us some orders, some thoughts on the public worship gathering of the church. What do Christians do when they gather together for worship? And we saw last week that healthy churches pray fervently for all kinds of people. Well, today Paul's going to continue that train of thought. And this week we'll see that healthy churches embrace God's instructions for corporate worship. That's the main point today, healthy churches faithfully embrace God's instructions for corporate worship. We don't veer away, we don't make it up ourselves, we follow God's prescription. And we'll see that Paul will break that down into three sections, or three points today as we walk through the text. First, we'll see the man's heart in corporate worship. The man's heart in corporate worship Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Well, Paul gives men instruction in prayer in corporate worship, and he says that men should pray lifting holy hands. Now, this doesn't mean that every time a man prays, his physical hands must be holy, as if you can wash your hands long enough to make them holy. No, it doesn't also mean that it means every single time you pray or a man prays, he needs to lift his hands physically. Now, you can certainly do that, but it's not an absolute command. Throughout Scripture, we see all kinds of prayers offered to God. We see that David sat down when he prayed. We see Daniel kneeled down to pray. Jesus prayed lifting his eyes. Isaac's servant prayed by bowing his head upon upon finding Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. The tax collector in Luke 18 prayed standing and beating his chest. When God confirmed the covenant, Abraham just flat fell on his face in prayer. As did Joshua before the pre-incarnate Christ at the gates and walls of Jericho. And then you have Solomon, who did, at the dedication of the temple, he raised his outstretched hands towards heaven as he prayed. No, the physical posture of prayer doesn't seem to be the point that Paul is making here. The hands are the part of the body most associated both with prayer, but also associated with our everyday actions. We use them all the time. Hands represent one's heart, one's mind. Is your heart pure? That's the question. Man, that's the question Paul's getting at here. Is your heart pure? Because the important thing is not your posture physically during prayer, but the posture of your heart during prayer. And Paul's speaking of an outward sign of an inward reality. Men should pray with a holy heart. 
But not just that. They should do it without anger and without quarreling. It's inappropriate for us to approach God's word and God in prayer when our hearts are approaching others with bitterness or anger. Paul's saying you can't truly worship God when your heart is preoccupied with being angry at someone else in this room. Reconciliation with others must come before worship of God. And so brothers, I ask you today, how's your heart today? How's your heart? Are you angry with someone in this room because of a bad business deal? Or are you angry because maybe someone didn't do business with you? Are you struggling with a coworker who just so happens to attend this church with you? Are you holding a grudge, maybe even against your wife who's sitting right beside you? Are you bitter with an elder or another leader in this church because of something they said or something they did? And are you stirring up trouble by holding grudges and then gossiping about other men? Are you looking to get other men on your side? See, this is how church splits happen. It's when enough unhappy people get together and decide they're going to go down the street to start the first apostolic church of the unhappies. They just get all the, all the disgruntled people. You find all the people that are angry with the church or angry with someone else and you just kind of gather together and then you go. One minute men are raising their arms in worship and in prayer. The, the next minute they're bitter and angry at someone else. Now, I don't see evidence of this happening in our church. I don't see a threat of a church split. But men, I don't know your heart. I don't know what's going on inside of your heart. How is it today? Is your heart full of anger or quarreling? Well, if it is, then make things right. Take time this week before we take part in communion next Friday to reconcile with your brother or sister. Don't let it go. Don't let your anger or quarreling go down throughout the week, throughout the month and the years. Confess before God. Talk to that person. Reconcile and then take part in the Lord's Supper with us next Friday. So instruction for men. But Paul's not just talking to the man. He doesn't let the women off the hook. He gives women instructions too. That's the second point this morning. The heart of the woman in corporate worship. The heart of the woman in corporate worship. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul focuses on a woman's appearance in corporate worship. While the focus is on gatherings of Christians, it's not likely that Paul here gives instruction for women to dress one way in worship, but then they can do whatever they want once they're outside. As if a Christian could act one way in this room, but then go outside this room and live a totally different way. No, these principles have bearing on all our lives. Women are to be modest. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's easier to say what it doesn't mean. In Ephesus, this kind of dress Paul is speaking of was associated with the temple prostitutes or the extremely wealthy women in the royal court. And the women, they would spend hours putting gold and jewels in their hair, getting their dress set up and ready. And the goal of those women was either for seduction 
or to show off their wealth and prestige, to be a center of attention. Paul says this kind of behavior has no part in Christian worship. Now, this doesn't mean that all the married women need to take off their gold rings and put it in the offering bag when it comes around. It's not what the text is saying. Paul's not telling women to neglect their appearance. They're not saying to throw your makeup away, throw your perfume away, stop brushing your hair or taking showers. Paul's not saying that red lipstick's of the devil. Paul is saying, be modest in your dress. Make it your aim to call attention to Jesus, not on yourself. Well, what exactly is modest clothing? What should women wear? Well, I have no desire to get into those specifics this morning from this pulpit. (laughs) Or any morning, for that matter. I may not be very smart, but I know not to do that. I'm not going to give you rules. I don't have a forbidden list of brand names. There won't be a measuring tape at the connections table on the way out to check your sleeves or skirt length. It's not my intention today or ever. No, if we gave you some rules, you'd either be very angry at me or you'd be very happy because now you have some boundaries that you can try to follow and please God. But the biggest issue at the heart of Paul's instruction is the heart. That's the problem. See, your wardrobe is a public statement of your heart's desires. Your clothes, your makeup, your hairstyle and conduct are a public address announcement to the world of what you want to communicate about yourself. Immodesty isn't simply whether the dress is too revealing. It's the act of drawing undue attention to yourself. It's actually pride. Have you ever thought about that? You think so highly of whatever it is about you that you want others to see. You want them to look at you so they'll make much of you. It's pride. Well, I told you I won't give you rules. But the Bible does tell us something about what modesty looks like. It's just not necessarily what we want to hear. Look at verse 10. He says, What is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You know, it's interesting that in 1 Peter chapter 3... Peter says the same thing. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, Peter may think Paul is hard to understand at times, but these two men are always in sync. They're always on the same page. Now, these men aren't commanding ugliness. They're not saying that the mission of a godly woman is to win an ugly contest. It's not what he's saying. They're not saying women must wear clothes that are out of style so that you buy clothes, stuff them in your closet for 20 years, and then take them out to wear. It's not what they're saying. That's not the heart of this passage. They're saying, women, don't be consumed with an outward display of beauty. I heard a story a few years ago. It was told by the late Nora Ephron. It's a movie producer and writer. And she talked about her friends who were obsessed with their appearance. And she said that some of her friends are starting to feel bad about their necks. You know, your neck. 
They literally worry about what people think about their necks. And Nora said that her friends are starting to wear jewelry and starting to wear clothes that actually cover up their necks. She said it's because faces lie, but necks tell the truth. Right? We work hard to fix up our faces. We put makeup, we put lipstick, we color our hair, we color our beards, we do all this work. But our necks eventually collapse, don't they? There's no way around it. You can't lift your neck. You know why there's so many cosmetic surgery centers and beauty parlors in Dubai? You know, there's a reason Jumeirah Beach Road is just full of them. Have you seen them? There's like a restaurant, a cafe, and 14,000 beauty parlors and cosmetic surgery centers and nail spas. I don't even know what a nail spa is. Did you stick your hands in a sauna and... I don't even know what these things are, but there's thousands of them just up and down the road. Now, why do we have so many? Well, it's because to maintain your physical beauty, you have to keep going back to them again and again and again. One visit never finishes the job. Your fingernails grow out, nail polish chips, your hair color wears off, and you go back again. It's the same thing with fashion. Old fashions get old. New fashions are new. They come out often. Uh, Paul and Peter are saying, instead of being consumed with your physical clothing, be consumed with your spiritual clothing. If you don't work on, work on the internals and instead stick to the, to the externals, the book of Proverbs has some strong words for you. It says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. See, you can be beautiful on the outside, but when the inside is left unkept, then it's like putting a gold ring on a pig. See, you can put dozens and dozens of gold rings on a pig, but it's still a pig. It still rolls around in the mud. Well, modesty is the overflow of a woman who is self-controlled, who is consumed with godliness, who is abounding in good works. Self-control means restraining yourself from calling attention to yourself. Now, deep down, all of us want attention. We want to be known. But friend, you can stop obsessing over making sure people know you and trust God to be your public relations department. If God wants you to be known for something, let him do it. And strive for godliness. We see this theme of godliness all throughout the pastoral epistles. It's mentioned ten times in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. Faith and love, which flow out of godliness, are a theme that runs through this book. We saw it in chapter 1. We'll see it again in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Self-control, godliness. And then the end of verse 10. Good works. The ultimate adornment for the Christian woman is not gold but her service for God. The but that begins verse 10 shows a strong contrast. Don't do this. Be overly concerned about your physical appearance, but instead dress yourself by serving others. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created to do good works. Now, the Bible is filled with beautiful women who've dressed themselves by serving for the benefit of others. We see that Dorcas was a woman who regularly did deeds of charity. Priscilla opened up her home for Paul and the church at Ephesus. 
She and her husband Aquila risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. Rebecca fed the servants camels for hours. And then there's Rufus's mom. She took care of Paul like he was her own son. You know, it's interesting that whenever you look at the great women of Scripture, you never find out what they look like. The Scriptures never say, well, here's Ruth. She was beautiful. She had long, brown, flowing hair, tan skin, and wonderful blue eyes. You never see that, here's Sarah. Here's her weight. Here's her shape. Here's her height. No, their descriptions are always of character. You know, I'm so thankful for this church. So thankful for the ladies in this church because our church is filled with beautiful women. And Glenn, you can quote me on that. <laughs> this church is filled with beautiful women. Auntie Shantha serves her grandchild selflessly for long hours and in difficult conditions. She is an extraordinarily beautiful woman. Happy Kambule loves meeting with ladies all week long. She has poured her life for years in her discipleship group. That's beauty. Regina Prakashan spends time in the church office doing accounting and administration behind the scenes. It's beautiful. Amanda Hayes and Corsair Vining give their life to discipling youth and adults in this church and doing whatever it is that we ask as a church. They're not wasting their singleness. They're not wallowing in discontentment, but instead give their lives to sacrifice for the bride of Christ. Beautiful. Daisy Molly enters in information for our church website for hours on end from her flat in Ajman. Kim Gregory is always, always volunteering for behind-the-scenes jobs like laptop and other things. Julie Plum pours her life out in hospitality and discipleship of ladies in Murdoff. Leanne Stiles, for years, has been quietly and humbly discipling and counseling women all throughout the week. Sarah Mortola never ceases to encourage me and others in this church about how we're doing as a church. Carol Dyson is always looking out for people who need to hear the gospel or need to be connected in the church. And there are dozens of mothers in this room who 24 hours a day pour their lives out in discipleship and raising up their children with joy and with gladness. Each day to wake up again, hit the repeat button and do it with glad hearts on little to no sleep. Beautiful women. Beautiful women are everywhere in this church. And by God's grace, these women are adorning themselves with good works. They're spending less time shopping and more time serving. They're looking out for ways that they can serve this congregation and others to the glory and honor and praise of God. That's true beauty. So Paul is saying in our text today, that's true beauty. Women who adorn themselves with good works of service. My sisters in Christ, how are you adorning yourselves? What are you most consumed with, your clothing or your character? Does your appearance put the spotlight on Jesus or on you? Do you take more time on Friday mornings thinking about what you're going to wear or about who you're going to serve? Gals in the Regeneration Youth Group or in Jumpstart, how about you? 
Are your wardrobe choices done to please God or to garner attention for yourself? Do you intentionally show parts of your body off to get noticed? Have you ever stopped to ask your mother or father if what you're wearing commends Christ and is appropriate? And fathers, have you shepherded your daughters in modesty? Have you loved them enough to have grace-filled conversations about her appearance? Even if it's awkward to bring up. Have you pursued your daughters in love? Well, Pastor Philip gave the members at our last member meeting a challenge regarding our finances. He encouraged us to go off to someone of a different ethnicity and have them look at our budget, to have them look at our finances to see if we are stewarding God's money in a manner worthy of the gospel. I thought that was a good challenge. Well, I want to offer a similar challenge to my sisters in Christ in this room. I want to encourage each of you this week to find another sister you trust, perhaps of a different nationality, And ask them whether your wardrobe, whether your appearance honors Jesus. Whether it commends the gospel or whether it calls attention unnecessarily to yourself. See friends, every time the church gathers just like this, the church should look like a beauty pageant filled with women who adorn themselves with good works. May this be true of us. Well, so far we've seen Paul give instruction to the men and the women about their heart and worship. He's going to shift gears now just a little bit to give clarity to the roles of men and women in worship. That's the third point this morning. The roles of men and women in corporate worship. Verse 11. Let a woman live Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. See, most people, when they read verse 11, they want to focus on that word submissiveness and say how constricting that verse is. But it's actually quite empowering. See, in Jewish society, women weren't allowed to study. They weren't allowed to be trained in the same way men were. It's a bold proclamation, actually. Women, you can be trained. Women, you can learn. Women, you can teach. This was stunning news in that day. No, to learn quietly here in no way means silence. It appears that women were in danger of upsetting the church by trying to use their freedom to learn in ways that didn't honor God. But this doesn't mean that women can't talk in the gathered assembly. First Corinthians, women were allowed in some form or fashion to pray and prophesy in meetings. Now, Paul qualifies the idea of what quietly means with the idea that learning should be done in all submissiveness. This is a quietness that respects and honors and submits to the leadership of the church. Paul's concerned that women learning not become an opportunity for them to overturn the role of submission. Now, I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word submission. Does it conjure up Positive or negative thoughts. See, as Christians, we think very highly of submission. It's not a bad word to us. It's a wonderful thing that we honor. The biblical submission is beautiful because it's God's idea. And it's even grounded in and modeled in God himself, the Trinity. We sang of this earlier. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, 
In three persons, they are co-dignified, co-eternal, the Father and the Son and the Spirit of the same essence. Nowhere in Scripture is Jesus said to be inferior to the Father. And yet we see the Father sending the Son and the Son submitting to his Father's will. Jesus is subordinate to the Father, but the two are equally God. One leads and sends, the other responds and applies. There are different roles and functions, but these don't imply any inferiority. Now, to some degree, submission is everywhere, isn't it? In Scripture, every creature is called to submit, often in different ways, in different times. Children are to submit to their parents, wives to their husbands. Church members are to submit to faithful elders. All of us are to submit to governing authorities, and all are to submit to God. And Jesus is the epitome of submission, the one who perfectly submitted to the Father in the incarnation and then even to death on the cross. Jesus, was, who was equal to the Father, did not consider equality a thing to be grasped. He lived humbly as a human and then humbly died like a criminal. He himself, God in the flesh, displayed the glory of God by his submission. And so submission is a beautiful thing. We don't hide it. We don't try to downplay it at our church. When we submit properly to authority, we show something beautiful about our Savior. One way women can do that is to dress appropriately. You know, it's interesting how here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 all talk about the place of men and women in the church. And all three of them talk about a woman's appearance. How a woman dresses is a reflection of whether they're submitting to earthly authorities and to God. Well, Paul clarifies even more about what exactly he means to submit in verse 12. I do not, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this is obviously not a complete prohibition of women teaching. We see in Titus chapter 2 that older women are supposed to teach younger women. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy learned, that, learned scripture from his mother and his grandmother. Priscilla and Aquila together admonished Apollos, who was confused in his faith. It was helpful to let the second phrase guide us. That women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. See, leading and teaching are the two main roles of the office of an elder. We see in chapter 3 that elders are able to teach. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, elders are ruling the church in labor and preaching and teaching. And just after this passage in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul is actually going to lay out the requirements for elders. You know, these chapters and verse references were not inspired They were not in the original text. Later on, people put them there. I think the point is that Paul's being rather fluid with his argument here. He's talking about the role of an elder. Paul's saying here, and he backs it up in chapter 3 as well, that a woman is not to hold the office of an elder by holding authority and preaching and teaching in the public gatherings of the church. Women can participate in prayer and Bible reading. They can teach other women, disciple women, teach youth and children, share testimonies in baptism, contribute to Bible discussions, facilitate, organize, and much, much, much more. 
This doesn't mean that women are inferior in any way. In fact, many women have amazing speaking and teaching abilities that far outweigh myself and other men. You know, one of our elders, Max Stiles, often tells a story of a time when he and a friend of ours named Michael Lawrence, another pastor, when they were attending a church, that day in attendance there happened to be a female preacher that day. And so they listened to the sermon, and afterwards Michael turned to Mac and said, I know it's wrong, I know it's not right, but man, she spoke to my heart. See, it's not that women are less gifted than men. It's not that they're inferior to men. Men weren't given the roles because they were gifted or because we have a monopoly on the truth of God. No, Paul gives us two reasons in our passage. He tells us why. And he grounds it in creation and the fall. Verse 13, in the creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. No, God is sovereign over roles. It was his choice. Now, here's a question you might be asking. Why did we say that the prohibition about wearing gold and braided hair was cultural, but we're not saying that submission is out of date? Couldn't we say that submission is just an archaic cultural idea? Why can't we just throw this out and just take some general principles? Well, Paul is talking about something that is transcultural. Why? Well, we just read it. Paul's words on submission are in cultural, but they're above culture. He grounds this in creation. Paul goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Creation is binding. It's enduring over culture. God's purposes are over, are transcendent over culture. And God's design for men and women was part of his creation plan all along. Men are to bear the responsibility for for leading and teaching in the church because God has put it into his framework for men and women from the very beginning. And so we take the Bible side against the culture. Even when the culture may argue against them, we need to be careful not to capitulate to the culture and take its side against God. No, our roles are God's idea. Not because men are more educated. It's not because of culture. Men and women are equal before God. We're all created in the image of God. Everyone has equal value and equal worth, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're handicapped or have a disability, whether you're weak or you're strong, young or old, rich or poor, whether you're from Kiev or Kathmandu, all of us, every single one of us in this room are made in the image of the one true, perfect, and holy God. We all have equal dignity and equal honor, period. Every last one of us, made by God, created by Him. God made us male, and He made us female. Equal, but different. He made us male and female in order to complement each other. I don't mean that we're to merely say sweet things about each other. That's not the complimenting I mean. He made us to be complementary of one another. He made man and woman to bring something to one another, to complete one another, to bring benefit to one another. It was not good for man to be alone. No, Paul grounds the leadership and the teaching of men in the church to creation. But he adds a second reason in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
Paul uses the fall as an illustration to show what happens when we reverse roles. He's saying, let me show you what happens when the man fails to lead. Now, let me be careful to say with clarity that this isn't to say that women are more gullible or less reliable than men. Now, Paul wouldn't then in turn tell women to teach other women if that was true. Now, notice the text here in the one in Genesis 3 that Shahab read for us earlier In neither of those texts does it say that Adam was deceived. You don't find that in Scripture. His decision was even worse. Eve may have been deceived, but it was clear to Adam what he should have done. Eve was deceived by an animal that Adam and Eve were to rule over, but instead Adam followed Eve's lead. Eve didn't have to do a long search for Adam in the garden to share the fruit. They weren't playing a long game of hide-and-seek. No, he was right there. He stood by as his wife was approached by the serpent and Adam said nothing. He followed her into sin. The roles were reversed. Now the main point isn't the woman's deception that Adam and Eve rejected the God-given order that was set at creation. See, in the garden, the garden of Eden, there was a role reversal. Adam failed to lead his wife and sin came into the world. Now sin is now the store of every single woman and every single man in this world. And we confirm our sinfulness by living out that truth every day of our lives. Our sin against the holy God now puts us at enmity to the one creator and ruler of the universe. Romans 6 says the destiny of all of us who sin, which is all of us in this room and all of us who have ever ever been born, our destiny is death. That the wage of us following in Adam and Eve's footsteps is eternal death and judgment. The bad news is that the Bible starts with a tragic reversal in a garden. But the good news is that in the Gospels, we see another reversal in another garden. In the first garden, the first Adam turned away from God the Father by rejecting God's design for for their lives. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, turned to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and submitted to God's design for his life. The first Adam is told, submit to me regarding the tree and you'll live. But he didn't. God comes to the second Adam and says, submit to me regarding the tree and you will die. And he did. In the Garden of Eden, man disobeyed and died. Centuries later, in another garden, Jesus obeyed. And he died. Jesus climbed the tree of death and turned it into a tree of life for you and me. It was the greatest act of submission in all of history. Jesus took the curse of, of, of our, our failing to submit to God and he took our sin by submitting himself to God the Father. And that curse that we have, that curse was reversed. God himself would come to earth for his people. I mean, look at this good news in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this is not an easy verse. Maybe some of you in your community groups were studying it this past week, and you just couldn't figure out what it was saying. Well, you're in good company, because many say that this is the most difficult verse in all of the New Testament to interpret. I read at least 14 different evangelical interpretations of this one verse. 
all of them faithful to the scope of Scripture, but all of them vary at different points. But there is general agreement that verse 15 is intended to lessen the impact of what we read in verses 13 and 14. This doesn't mean that if you have 10 kids, you'll be saved or preferred by God. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that you'll be spiritually saved if you have kids and that if you don't have kids, you won't be saved. No, we know that there are barren women and people who aren't married, who don't have kids, who are saved. That truth would betray the truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it doesn't mean that you'll be saved physically in childbirth if you're a Christian. We all know women who have suffered in childbirth, some who've even died. Well, some faithful interpretations say that Paul references childbearing because it is a universal example of the God-given difference for the roles of men and women. Men don't give birth to children. So when Paul says women will be saved through childbearing, he means that by not seeking the man's role, the woman will be more likely to remain in the heart attitude that invites salvation and its blessings. Maybe some of us in the church or even some elders that may teach that. But others, myself included, think that this verse 15 refers to spiritual salvation that would come through the birth of the Messiah. Verses 13 through 15 should then be taken as a coherent argument. We've seen how men and women have abdicated the positions God has given them in creation and the fall. In Eve's direct encounter with the serpent, the creation order is reversed. And she takes the lead into sin. Paul focuses on the transgression of Eve because the women in Ephesus are particularly at fault, usurping the leadership authority from the men in the church. Just like Eve did in the garden when the serpent subverted the order that God designed. The snake usurped the wife, who usurped the husband, who followed the wife, who followed the snake. It seems that Eve is still the subject of verse 15, And Paul points to good news for Eve and to all of us there in verse 15. He says that as Eve was saved through Christ, who would one day be born, so can the fallen women at Ephesus be saved through Christ. So can all of us be saved. God saved humanity through the physical nature of childbirth, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now that fits Paul's argument by fulfilling her role, difficult as it may be now after the fall, she gives birth to the line of the Messiah who brings salvation. Now the future tense points forward from Eve to the promised future deliverance by the means of the seed of the woman, which is Christ. And so every birth from Eve all the way to Mary would awaken hope that the Messiah could come. And now every birth today should be a reminder that Jesus our Savior has come. So there, there is mercy from God. There is hope. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that the Savior of the world has come. That he was born of a woman. That he was born a baby. That he lived a perfect life and died a death for us. God in the flesh. He came to save his people's sins and to pay the penalty for them. Oh friend, repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus to be saved and he will save you. And fellow Christian, would our church show the fruit of salvation by living in the way God has intended us to? Would we be a people who would continue in faith and in love and holiness with self-control? Would we be a healthy church that doesn't compromise to culture, 
That we'd not be a healthy church that would be swayed by what the culture demands, but would we be a healthy church that faithfully embraces God's instructions for corporate worship and beyond? Well, to that end, let's pray to our great God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. That it is in Christ alone who sets everything right. Oh, we acknowledge that in our flesh, it's our tendency to reject you and to reject the roles that you've given us. Father, would we be a people who would embrace your creation mandate and live as a church in a way that shines the spotlight, not on ourselves or on our sin or our flesh, but instead would we shine the spotlight by our actions, by our wardrobe, by our unity, by our church order, would we acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Savior of the world. Oh, Father, help us to boast in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.